Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and mainly history. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. Today's episode is a special recording of our first ever live show, which was available on Facebook Live on June 17th. It features myself, Crystal and Shevland, and Alexander Montgomery, each trying to persuade a live audience that our chosen candidate should be recognized as the most corrupt, petty figure in colonial American history, in a pageant of corruption. The charismatic English voice you hear is of guest host and technological wizard, Guy Dickinson. You can follow our Meanly History Facebook page and be able to see the video recording of that show. You should definitely follow our page regardless, so you can stay up to date on any and all Mainly History goings on. Plus, have the opportunity to befriend fellow fans. Another Don't Miss event is coming up Saturday, August 7th, when the now two-time Mainly History guest, Alexandra Montgomery, is joining several other scholars for the Maine Historical Society's Annual Historians Forum, hosted by yours truly. We'll be discussing the Bajepska proprietors, who did receive a brief mention during our live show. We'll also be talking about the huge collection of their records held at the Maine Historical Society. The event will be held online from 9 a.m. until noon Eastern Standard Time. Again, that's this Saturday, August 7th. The event is free to register and attend, and you'll be able to find links to it on our Facebook page and on our Twitter feed at Mainly History. This podcast took a hiatus this July so your host could get married. Having done so, we're back to our regular twice per month schedule in August. Up next are conversations about veterans organizations and the rise of summer tourism in Maine, and a chance to get to know one of Maine's most elusive yet charismatic marine mammals, the right whale. Does that show involve whale sounds? Maybe. Till then, enjoy this recording of our first, but definitely not last, live show. to the first ever live show of Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxine, and with me today is our esteemed guest host um, and technological guru extraordinaire, Guy Dickinson. Guy, welcome to Mainly History. Hi, Ian, how are you? Well, I'm very excited, um, and I'm also thrilled to introduce our other two uh, guests today, Crystalline Shuffland and Alexandra Montgomery. Uh, both of you, welcome to Mainly History. Happy to be here. Very happy to be here as well. So Ian, tell me, what are we doing here? What, uh, what are we gonna be doing on this live, first ever live broadcast of Mainly History? Uh, yes, well, um, so the inspiration uh, for this show uh, came about with sort of my realization uh, that 
encountering many people assuming that folks from earlier eras uh, were serious. Uh, maybe they were smart, like Ben Franklin or uh, James Madison, uh, or maybe they committed, committed terrible crimes, like uh, Lord Cornwallis uh, attempting genocide in uh, Nova Scotia against uh, indigenous people, uh, but they were always uh, driven by a serious sense of purpose. Um, and so living in our own era, uh, where so many major political figures are scandal prone and just sort of ridiculous uh, going on Appalachian trail hikes and selling Senate seats and doing uh, four seasons total landscaping tile, uh, style sort of uh, appearances, um, I wanted to, uh, to have a show that really focused on uh, the really tawdry roots of, of colonial American history in a way uh, that often gets, gets overlooked and how uh, important people uh, can, can make an impact even, when, uh, even though they're not necessarily particularly competent or serious or honest. Um, and so this is, this is very much an event meant to embrace the, uh, the ridiculous and the, the corrupt and the shallow and selfish. A rogues gallery, if you will. It is, it is a rogues gallery. Um, and so uh, in this sense, I thought, uh, I don't know why, I don't know where I came up with this, but that this would be best, uh, best done in the sense of having some of these people compete in a pageant, uh, but of, of corruption instead of say swimsuits, et cetera. <laughs> so having these people strut across the stage, uh, metaphorically, of course, uh, advocated for uh, by our two distinguished guests uh, and myself, uh, and of course, ably hosted by, uh, by a, a charming guest host so that I would not have an unfair home field advantage. Well, I've, I've also gone out of my way to learn nothing about these characters before, um, before hosting. So with our audience, I'll be, uh, I'll be playing along um, sort of right with everyone else. So should we, um, should we uh, meet the panelists and uh, explain a little bit about how this is gonna work? Absolutely. Very so, much so. so the way this is, go is going to work is each of our panelists will introduce and uh, give, give some background and history about their character, uh, about their historical figure. And, and we're going to do this sort of along, um, along four categories. Um, so connections, what kind of uh, corrupt dealings you got up to with other people, greed, what, uh, how self-interested were these people, pettiness, just how... Um, how, how backstabbing and uh, um, how petty these, these people really were and uh, overall impact for a, for a fourth and final round. And uh, each, of our, each of our panelists, yourself included, of course, Ian, will uh, be responsible for one character. So, um, so with that, should we, should we meet our panelists and, and their characters? Um, Absolutely. So first, um, I'd like to introduce Alexandra Montgomery, uh, who's a postdoctoral fellow in the digital history and cartography of the Amer American Revolutionary War era at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Hi, Alexandra. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. Happy okay. to be here. Thanks very much for being I think here. I said that already. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still happy for now. Can you, can you tell us just uh, one or two sentences about, uh, about your character of the day? 
Sure. So I am going to be uh, wrapping, I guess, although I'm not sure that I'd necessarily want to really throw my personal lot in behind uh, Francis Bernard, uh, who was a governor of Massachusetts. He was governor of Massachusetts um, from 1760 to 1769, which was not a great time to be a governor of Massachusetts, if you know anything about uh, the imperial crisis and other such unpleasantries. Uh, later on, he he became Sir Francis Bernard, first baronet, when he received the baronetcy of Nettleham, Nettleham, Nettleham I'm not sure how, what the proper way to pronounce that is, but um, that was only after the events that we'll be, uh, I'll be discussing today. Well, great. Thanks very much for being here. Uh, next, Crystalline uh, uh, Shefland is an associate professor uh, of history at the University of Southern Indiana and the author of Anglo-Native Virginia Trade, Conversion and Indian Slavery in the Old Dominion, 1646 to 1722. Crystalline, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your character as well? Yes. Well, I'll be talking about Lieutenant uh, Governor of the Virginia, Alexander Spotswood. He was uh, the acting governor, because of course we had one of those absentee governors, George Hamilton, first Earl of Fourteen. Uh, Spotswood is a wonderful example of the Atlantic world, born in British-occupied Tangiers. He was the governor of Virginia from 1710 to 1722. Obviously, I'm very biased. He is, of course, the subject of many chapters with, within my book, but he is much beloved within Virginia, uh, in part because he's responsible for the death of Blackbeard, uh, but he is, is also, of course, responsible for that beautiful colonial governor's mansion that everyone knows from Williamsburg. Well, great. Looking forward to hearing more, more about him. And finally, of course, Ian, um, who I imagine listeners and now viewers know, know and love. Tell, tell us a little bit about, uh, about who you're representing today. So I am representing Samuel Waldo. Uh, like many people who caused trouble in Maine, uh, he came from Boston, in Massachusetts, uh, and seemed to think that he owned the place. He was uh, one of the largest land speculators in all of Maine history. Uh, he, he dabbled in politics. Uh, he, uh, unlike most landowners, he never seemed to really uh, sell any land. He just wanted to own as much as possible and kind of rent it out. Um, and I initially, uh, he, he features prominently in my own first book, Properties of Empire. Uh, and the funny thing about Waldo is that uh, he, he's really good at punching down. Uh, and yet uh, the story of his life is one of constantly failing uh, to sort of achieve his ultimate goals. Um, and so I, I uh, look forward to getting to that. And he's got a bunch of towns and he's a, a county named after him in Maine, um, which I think is unfortunate, but there you have it. All right, so um, the format here is what each, uh, each contestant, each panelist will talk for a minute uh, or two about each of their categories or each of their um, characters in each category. And then we'll open it up to the live audience uh, on Facebook Live and each and we'll, we'll collect votes uh, and whoever gets the, the first place in each category will, will, will take that and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll total these up at the end for the, for the ultimate overall winner. Um, and with that, let's uh, 
let's let's begin. So, in so the, a question for the for the teaming multitudes out there watching. So they they will be voting at the end of each category. Then yes, that's right. So okay. I will open it. I will open up a a poll on the live stream Wonderful. for for each of these. Um, and we'll, we'll let that run for for just a couple of minutes, uh, or maybe a little bit less. Um, now, is there a physical trophy that the winner gets to take home and display proudly <laughs> alongside their academic credentials and uh, publications? If well, I don't win, I'm going to make you win. <laughs> Okay. I, All right. If, here we yep, go. <laughs> and if I win, I'm just going to craft it myself. I think, and just, you know, um, there has to be a plaque of some kind for mm -hmm. your office. I, I think so. Yes. I, so the working titles of this award ceremony was the Plundies. Um, and so to honor these people who, you know, were motivated solely by greed. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, in future iterations of this event, when we celebrate different vices, you know, we can, we can rotate what is being celebrated. All right, so Alexandra, could you tell us uh, about Francis Bernard uh, in the category of connections and general corruption with other people? Sure. Uh, so uh, Francis Bernard himself did not have a particularly flashy background. He was the son of a reverend. Um, what he did have was fancy neighbors. Uh, and the primary reason he was able to get any of the appointments that he got, um, of which the two were governor of Massachusetts, which I uh, mentioned prior to being governor of Massachusetts, he was governor of New Jersey for two years, um, was his near neighbors were the Pownall brothers. Uh, Thomas Pownall, uh, of course, was a governor of Massachusetts during the Seven Years' War, uh, who got up to some notable notable adventures, including being present uh, for the death of, uh, of our friend, Mr. Waldo, who Ian will be telling us more about. Um, the other Pownall brother, John, was secretary for the Board of Trade. Um, and it was really through his connections with them uh, that he was able to um, get colonial appoint appointments all. Uh, his other big connection was uh, Viscount Barrington, who was a cousin of his wife. Uh, so it was really those three, that, that nexus of those three connections that was able to uh, get him um, these fairly, relatively, relatively nice sorts of positions. Um, he also developed relationships uh, with uh, both Benjamin Franklin and his son, uh, William Franklin, which he um, proceeded to abuse um, and they later fell out quite a lot. I, I'm actually, I, I'm not convinced that anyone actually liked Francis Bernard. Um, he doesn't seem to have been very pleasant and people do not seem to go out of their way to help him do anything, but he does go out of his way to have them do things for him. Uh, so my favorite example of this is his uh, eldest son kind of um, ran away from university and went on a bender in Virginia. Um, and he sent, uh, Francis Bernard sent a series of increasingly nagging letters to Benjamin Franklin uh, saying that, you know, my son is nearer to you than he is to me. I need you to go and get him. Um, and Ben Franklin didn't respond. And so he wrote like five more letters being like, no, you promised my wife you would take care of my son if he was near Philadelphia. Again, he's in Alexandria at this point, which is not particularly close to Philadelphia. Um, and eventually someone does go down there, hauls little Frank, um, out of whatever brothel he was in in Alexandria and forces him to go back home. But that's sort of that's sort of how um, Francis Bernard was was using his using his connections. He also had um, some connections of a number of, uh, sort of lower level members of Parliament that he went in on land schemes with, um, most notably Richard Jackson, um, and he, uh, where he was trying to use his position um, as colonial governor to get plum land grants for those people on behalf of those people. All right. Thank you very much. Um, 
let's uh, let's go to Crystalline and hear about uh, the governor of Virginia, uh, Mr. Spotswood. So everything starts out really well. I mean, he's born to basically be a part of the Atlantic world from the very beginning, has a fairly distinguished, if not remarkable, career in the British Army, um, and then proceeds to absolutely decimate every opportunity that he has. He did not read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He managed to alienate just about everyone, uh, insulting the General Assembly, uh, insulting the Lords of Trade, insulting the Bishop of London, uh, and insulting not one, but two sets of colonists from the German Palatinate that he brought into his own colony, who eventually abandoned him to move south into the into Carolina, and he died basically in ignominy in Baltimore in 1740. And we don't know where he's buried. So, so infamous, no one bothered to write it down. <laughs> he may or may not be buried in Baltimore. <laughs> we don't know. All right, so Ian, tell us, uh, tell us about Samuel Waldo, the aspiring politician and merchant. Uh, yes. So Waldo, uh, he had an excellent choice of parents. Uh, he was born to a, a wealthy father, uh, a, a, uh, an Englishman uh, in 1696 who moved to Boston when, uh, when little Samuel was four. Uh, and he, he proceeded to, to make a killing as a, a businessman. Uh, Samuel Waldo himself, by the time he was in his 20s, had acquired uh, major shares in the Muscungus uh, patent. Uh, which was a, a land claim uh, in the, the mid coast of Maine. Uh, but most importantly for Waldo, many of the other shareholders in this patent were themselves either governors of Massachusetts or families of former governors with names like Winthrop. Uh, so like dynastic families in Massachusetts. Uh, Waldo uh, then proceeded to, uh, and other members of this company included uh, the Cooks who were several generations of speakers of the Massachusetts House. Um, Waldo then in the 1730s hired an English man named William Shirley to be his lawyer. Uh, William Shirley then went on to become governor of Massachusetts in 1741. Um, and Waldo believed very strongly that uh, he had put Shirley there. Uh, and that Shirley therefore owed him lots of favors. Uh, the downside for Waldo in all of his connections though, is that uh, he bought out so many of his connections shares in his own company that when it came time to actually advocate for the Muscungus company uh, in the Massachusetts legislature, uh, most of his former associates didn't own any controlling shares anymore and therefore didn't really care if he got his way or not. Um, and so it would be stunts like that that, uh, uh, that harmed Waldo later in his career. Uh, but he was connected to uh, several generations of Massachusetts leadership by either sort of family ties or, you know, sort of uh, business ties with these families uh, or, or the fact that they were his employees. Wow, that's a high level of grift. So I think we've heard from everyone now. I'm going to open the poll up to, to our audience um, and uh, I'll activate that poll immediately. Um, and uh, we'll let that run for a couple of minutes. Um, and uh, while we do so, any, any closing pitches for your candidates in this category? 
I will add and say Waldo's granddaughter married Henry Knox um, and therefore uh, became a, uh, like, uh, even though she married down, uh, they became one of the premier landowning families in mid-Maine. And so Henry Knox built this massive mansion. Uh, and so this is why if you want to learn anything about Samuel Waldo, you have to look at the, the Knox papers. This is the guy who, among other things, Fort Knox, where all the gold is supposedly hidden uh, in the United States, is named after this guy. Uh, and so after, after, his, uh, after his death in 1759, Waldo's legacy lived on. Wow. That's... Uh a strong contender. And so we'll, we'll let this go for another just a few seconds. Um, any other closing arguments for, uh, for Bernard or Spotswood? Well, one thing I'll say about uh, Francis Bernard's connections is he was always, um, and this will be a theme with, 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 with Francis Bernard, is that in all of these categories, he uh, thought of himself much more highly than he perhaps was able to perform. Um, he's kind of, I consider him kind of a like pathetic figure. And one of, one, one of in the connections category, the example I would use to display that is a series of letters where he has sort of gone out of his way. In fact, um, kind of throwing the entire colony of Massachusetts under the bus to try to secure large land grants for his uh, friends in parliament um, in Passamaquoddy Bay area, only to have them cut him out um, of the grant uh, entirely. So not a, a strong attempt at grift, but ultimately- Yes, he's not, um, it's, it's really Francis Bernard's failures uh, that I think make him uh, <laughs> so compelling uh, <laughs> as a figure. <laughs> All right, so we'll, we'll leave that there. And um, by a factor of two, uh, Samuel Waldo is, is the runaway winner yes. here. So uh, a, 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 point, a point for Waldo uh, in the first round. Uh, so from here, we'll, we'll, move on to, we'll move on to Greed. And uh, um, Alexandra, tell us, uh, tell us about Bernard's- Oh, guys, should we just clarify real quick, differentiating between greed and pettiness, just so that people don't get redundant, you know, Greed is really the category when you think of these people strutting along. It's the scope of their ambition and their bottomless avarice. Whereas pettiness is their willingness to punch down, right? To like not tip the doorman or the carriage driver, you know, evicting family members, things they didn't need to do, but they did anyway. Yeah, unnecessary grudges, yeah, um, but long-held feuds, that sort yeah. of thing. But greed is like bigger stuff where like it was greedy, but like theoretically they thought they needed to do it to be rich or something else. A good clarification, I think so. So, so uh, Alexandra, tell us, tell us about the, the deep-seated greed uh, of Governor Bernard. Sure, so the thing with Bernard is I have this quote from John Adams here, which is that Bernard was avaricious to a most infamous degree and needy at the same time, um, which really kind of captures him, which is that he's constantly looking for cash and really pathetic about doing it. Um, part of the reason is that he um, has a large family. Um, he has 10 children, six of whom are boys that he wants to place well. But we're also talking about, you know, um, the colonial period in Massachusetts, where that is not a, like a, a shockingly large family by any means whatsoever. But he is absolutely obsessed with reminding every single person that he corresponds with just how many damn children he happens to have and how hungry they all are. And also Frank needs a military commission because he refuses to go back to school after his vendor in Alexandria. Um, so with, 
but he, they, he also does things like, so when he first arrives in Massachusetts, um, he immediately starts renovating the governor's mansion. And this sort of becomes this whole thing like, well, I had to renovate the governor's mansion because I have 10 children. And, uh, and so that's why you need to pay me more money. There's no reason he actually had to renovate the governor's mansion whatsoever. And it becomes another part of his litany of uh, reasons why he is asking every single person um, that he comes into contact with for money throughout the course um, of his governorship. Um, so his uh, constant and open begging uh, is what ends up getting him into the land speculation game in the first place. Uh, the General Court of uh, Massachusetts gives him a grant of Mount Desert Island um, in 1762. Um, there's a couple of theories about why they do this. Part of it has to do with a personal feud that James Otis kind of declared against him. Um, when Francis Bernard first came to the colony, he gave Hutchinson a position that had been promised to Otis and Otis kind of like vowed to destroy him. Um, so Otis is kind of actually the petty one here. Um, and so part of it, uh, and somehow um, I've seen other historians spin this into, they, they, he got the grant of Mount Desert Island to distract him from whatever it was that Otis was up to in Boston. And he kind of like took the bait hook, line and sinker, um, which he certainly did. He took it as um, proof that everyone in Massachusetts absolutely adored him, which they manifestly did not. This came on the heels of about 18 months of intense legal battles uh, over um, Francis Bernard's efforts to enforce uh, the Navigation Acts as stringently as possible so that he could get that for the children. For the children, you understand. For the children, of For course. the children, yes. Um, it was also in part uh, an attempt to kind of tie him into a larger attempt to get a number of townships uh, sort of out towards Mount Desert Island in Maine confirmed. There was a strange uh, legal situation for the land between um, the St. Croix River uh, and the Kennebec, but really the Penobscot at this point, where it, it fell under Massachusetts charter, but they were not allowed to grant land there unless it was directly confirmed by the king um, for a variety of, of wacky reasons. Um, so, but uh, so, so by giving Francis Bernard uh, this grand amount of Desert Island, it made him sort of directly responsible for attempting to get these townships confirmed by the king. However, what Bernard ends up doing is instead of taking this as a time to champion the rights of his colony, the rights of Massachusetts to this portion of what's now Maine, um, he goes behind the backs of the Board of Trade and the General Court at the same time by not telling the king or parliament, or even the colonial agent, the Massachusetts colonial agent um, in London about these township grants and simply trying to get his grant confirmed. Um, he has a line in his letter where he's like, well, you know, this would be easier for everybody if my grant just gets confirmed first, and then maybe later we'll figure out the townships. That's fine. Uh, he gets in a lot of trouble for that because that sort of gets discovered immediately and everyone freaks out at him. Uh, this is a this is a theme uh, is Bernard sort of clumsily trying to go behind people's backs um, and then everyone finding out immediately and getting mad at him. So this is just one one of these examples. Um, and then in reaction to um, the Board of Trade for a variety of reasons, does not want to confirm Massachusetts rights to this land. Um, in part, they think they're trouble and they don't like their religion. There's a variety of reasons why they don't want to give them uh, these townships. So Bernard devises an entire new scheme for how all of the colonies in North America should be arranged in order to put his land grant in its own colonial territory that he would then hopefully get governorship of. Um, so his theory here is he's going to take um, everything to the east of New Hampshire away from Massachusetts 
that will become its own colony. Um, and then Massachusetts gets to have Rhode Island, which he truly hates. He has a real grudge against Rhode Island. He thinks it's the, the absolute worst colony out of all of them. It's a den of iniquity and piracy. So oh, Massachusetts thought that. <laughs> yeah, he's particularly like intense about it though. So he wants to dissolve both Rhode Island and Connecticut um, and give them to Massachusetts. Um, and then in later iterations of the scheme, there's going to be four new colonies sort of running up the coast. Um, from Boston to Nova Scotia, but this is all sort of uh, done as a way of attempting to create more secure, a more secure claim to that land so that he can have his grant confirmed. Wow, that is a very, very strong uh, argument in favor, <laughs> in favor or perhaps uh, per against uh, Bernard as a, as a merchant of grift, but thank you, thank you very much. All right, Crystal, and we haven't heard from you in a little while. Tell us about Spotswood <laughs> and his, you know, deep levels of self-interest and um, just, um, you know, yeah. total greed. Total greed. Um, I would absolutely describe Spotswood as thinking that he is an agent of empire and working for the best interests of, of the British crown. But as I mentioned before, he really does not know how to negotiate with people. And his letters are so effusive uh, and filled with complaints. And I highly recommend if you want to read petty letters, read the collection of, of Spotswood letters. But Spotswood's best described actually by his favorite frenemy, um, William Byrd. And so, shameless plug, but I have to read it. Uh, <laughs> Byrd put this in his prose book and he didn't publish it during Spotswood's administration for quote, fear it might then have looked like flatter. <laughs> so he said, law has the furious priests assailed in vain with sword infidels to gain. But now the milder soldier wisely tries by gentler methods to unveil their eyes. Wonders apart, he knew twere vain to engage the fixed preventions of misguided age. With fairer hopes, he forms the Indian youth to early manners, probity, and truth. The lion's whelp thus on the Libyan shore is tamed and gentled by the artful moor, not the grim sire inured to blood before. So he's in part referencing uh, Spotswood's origins, but he's also talking about Spotswood's very heavy-handed attempt at forced conversion of indigenous children. Spotswood had a number of greedy plans on behalf of empire, including going up against the major tobacco merchants. As I mentioned, he goes against the pirates. He attempts to, the ironworks at the Germana colony. But his big project is the Virginia Indian Company, for which he has the Virginia Indian Trade Act. And in order to make this happen, he tried to force regulations upon the traders. They did not like this, of course, and that's part of what they, they, they fought against. But he also tried to force indigenous peoples into these tributary statuses. And in one such incident, he actually went against the colony of North Carolina, which had been actually just at war with the Tuscarora, and Spotswood decided, no, 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 I will not support my fellow colony. I will make separate peace agreements with the Tuscarora headmen in order to gain children to send to either the school at Fort Christana, which was part of the Virginia India Company, or to the Brafferson School at what was the nascent William and Mary College. 
he additionally tried to force other tributary indigenous groups to send their children. They refused to send children. Part of the reason they refused is of course, because there had been a long history of taking children and selling them into enslavement. And by the time that Spotswood entered into the situation, the Pamunkey were completely aware of what had happened and that none of the laws in place were protecting them. So they are rightfully refusing to send their children as are a number of other indigenous groups. So Spotswood seeking to make sure that he has enough children to be able to write back to the Bishop of London that he's doing a great job at Christiana and he's doing a great job at the Bratterton School kidnaps the headmen of the various groups and forces them to, to send their children. And then he writes these beautiful letters about how everyone can say their homilies and everyone knows their catechism and it's all going so very, very well. That's possible. The, uh, the forced capture of children really beggars belief in the, uh, in the category of greed at this point. Um, <laughs> Good gracious. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and finally, Ian, how greedy was Samuel Waldo? Oh, the uh, the sort of grim precursor to all those uh, Indian boarding schools is a very is very stiff competition. Uh, so Waldo, um, in his quest to to buy up all this land, uh, the first sort of major defining feature of his career was trying to convince. Uh, uh, everybody that the Muscungus patent was in fact legitimately purchased from the Penobscot people. The problem for Waldo is that it was not. It was the product of a, uh, of a shady, unratified land session by a, a headman named Madaka Wando that happened in 1694. And the Penobscots disavowed this for Waldo's entire life. Um, and they would never admit that they had approved this because they had not. Uh, Waldo spent his career uh, essentially trying to make fetch happen, to try and push this <laughs> alternative history of the event. And he starts spreading rumors that in fact, Madaka Wando had received a hat full of silver for all of this and that this was totally legitimate. And the only mention of this hat full of silver I have ever found is Waldo and his agent's own account of this treaty much, much later on. Um, and so Waldo, in fact, this treaty was so, this agreement, this land sale was so dodgy uh, that in fact, uh, the Massachusetts legislature rejected Waldo's claims and sided with the Penobscots in 1736. Um, and I should add the, uh, the Massachusetts legislature was full of land speculators at the time. And so it's not like they had a problem ratifying uh, Indian land deeds or anything like that, but they knew, uh, they knew that this one was rotten. And so Waldo uh, made up for lack of quality in arguments. Uh, instead, he replaced with quantity. And so he submitted four petitions within a month to the legislature trying to get it reversed. Uh, and then he traveled to England uh, to try and get uh, the governor of Massachusetts, a man by the name of Jonathan Belcher, replaced uh, by somebody more amenable to his, uh, to his land claims. Uh, that person eventually became, uh, the next governor was in fact, William Shirley, who was, surprise, surprise, besides lawyer's attorney, uh, a member of the Muscungus company and a major shareholder. And lo and behold, Shirley approached the Penobscots and started talking about hatfuls of silver um, in, in various negotiations with them. 
Um, the other thing that Waldo did is he, of course, wanted to convince uh, various colonists to move to his lands. Uh, but Waldo didn't want to sell lands to people and give them freeholds like uh, their own land. Instead, he wanted tenants uh, and he wanted people moving there on his own terms. And so, like many other unscrupulous business people, he looked for desperate people from overseas who could be tricked uh, into going uh, into dangerous work or low paid work. And in this case, that usually meant Germans, although occasionally uh, uh, Scots and Scots-Irish. So Waldo sent these predatory agents uh, crawling all over Europe, telling Germans that, by the way, did you know that Maine is a very temperate climate that has, uh, that has weather just like Germany? And if you move to Waldo town, uh, he didn't call it that, but it eventually became Waldo Borough. If you move to, at the time, Broad Bay, Maine, uh, there's going to be cows there for you and houses and buildings and support and everything is going to be great. Um, and so when these shiploads of Germans arrived, they found what they called in one complaint, a howling wasteland uh, with nothing at all. Um, and so Waldo was so unscrupulous in his immigrant recruitment that the notoriously xenophobic Massachusetts legislature had to pass laws that, first of all, they investigated him. Uh, and the only reason he escaped some sort of official investigation is that the governor's council, which included Waldo himself at the time, voted against it. Uh, but they finally passed laws for the humane treatment of these uh, ships from Europe with these sort of new tenants coming to uh, eventually Maine in response to what Waldo had been doing. Uh, and so those were the sort of two twin uh, causes of his life, which he was engaged in right up until his death in 1759. And I'll talk about how eventually he failed in many certain ways, but I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. I, I think the thing that really makes the story is the unit of silver is a hatful. How much could that be? Was it Big hat? I don't know what kind of a hat. Yeah, what kind of a hat are we talking here? This seems um, like very crucial information. It's true. I mean, to be fair, the Wabanakis liked hats. Uh, we have one of the earliest uh, in-color depictions we have of Wabanaki families is they wear these sort of cone-shaped winter hats. So if it was one of those, maybe it's big. Uh, but since I think this hat was entirely fictional, as was the silver, um, <laughs> uh, I think that we're asking the wrong questions. <laughs> So it's very, it's a very uh, Judas-y kind of a riff. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. All right, so we'll, we'll open this up to, to the audience and the, the category of greed. Um, we'll, we'll do that now. Um, Maybe the prize should be a silver hat. Um. <laughs> Ian, I like <laughs> that both of ours have, you know, German connections lying. Um, yes. <laughs> mine, mine does too, actually, as well. Uh, Germany is exactly where Bernard goes to try to get people to move to his uh, nice. Mount Desert township in part inspired by uh, the precedent created by the Waldo shenanigans. Um, <laughs> and he somehow, he somehow gets into some kind of mysterious legal trouble a few years after the fact. Um, I, I'm not sure what it is because all the documents are in German, which I can't read, and they're a very difficult pale paleography, but somehow he managed to get himself in legal trouble in Germany. Interesting. Uh, are, there, are there any uh, further last minute arguments for, uh, for Bernard or, or Spotswood um, that we haven't heard of in the, along the axis of greed, uh, anything that might tip it over the edge for our audience? 
Um, I'd like to give two additional examples um, of what Bernard was up to, if I may. I'll try to keep it brief. I have a lot to say about this subject. Um, when he was attempting to promote the work that he was doing in Mount Desert to settle his township, uh, he uh, developed a, um, a fishery whereby he would essentially um, make local fishermen into his debt slaves um, and demand, demanding you know, three quarters of their yearly catch. And then he later couched it as support for the poor. Um, yeah which is truly breathtaking. Um, and then the other thing I'll say along the same lines is his scheme to erect a new colony in order to get his lands confirmed. Um, when he's attempting to get these lands for his friends uh, in Passamaquoddy, uh, part of um, his attempt to get those grants made involves him um, vacating all of Massachusetts's claims to where the border between Massachusetts and Nova Scotia is, which um, later comes back uh, to kind of bite everyone in the behind about the location of the US-Canada border. So he was actually willing to um, completely reshape uh, lines of territory and sovereignty in order to get his friends who later cut him out of the deal uh, land grants in Passamaquoddy. This is really uh, also, I think, good. I mean, we've discussed some of this on a previous episode, uh, Alexandra and myself, but this is good grounds for a future episode too of the line of um, basically ambitious jerks who wanted to redraw the map using some portion of, of what's now Eastern Maine to become their own personal fiefdom. And there was just this real parade of them stretching for over a hundred years, really. Um, uh, in, in various ways. I suppose in the, in the early days when uh, lines were being drawn and redrawn regularly, that was a thing that you could pitch. Yeah. It's true. That's, I mean, that's in, that, in that area in particular, yeah. the, uh, the location of where the St. Croix River was, was uh, notoriously fungible. Uh, <laughs> All right, so we'll leave it there. And um, perhaps uh, remarkably, uh, the, our, our three rogues are, are tied, at, um, are, are all tied up with, uh, with the same votes apiece. So um, we, we can grant, depending, depending on how you want to do this, we can I give everybody I, a point or we can give nobody a point or I, I could administratively grant a point. Um, yeah. So um, I... I'm particularly, I have to say the, the twin uh, scams of the hat full of silver and the, the fake colony really is a, is a convincing one, at least just for total absurdity here. Um, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm gonna give another point to Waldo, um, uh, bringing, him, uh, bringing him into the, the lead uh, or, or perhaps into last place, depending on how you want to put it, um, <laughs> with a with a score of two. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll move along uh, to the to the category of pettiness, and pettiness, as we've talked about, is uh, just what what kind of grudges can you hold? What pointless fights are you getting into? Um, why? Um, how can what, who are you punching down? Uh, who are you holding down? Who are you climbing over to get to the top? Uh, and in that category, let's hear from Crystal and about Spotswood again. Oh, uh, so again, 
he's at his best when he's feuding with with William Bird, and so his his pettiness there is pretty absolute. But in his Virginia um, India Company debacle and attempt to center all the trade at Fort Crestana and force the General Assembly to his will. Um, he didn't learn the lessons of the English Civil War. And so he decided that he was going to go ahead and just close debate in the General Assembly um, about the Indian Trade Act. And then publicly say, and I do quote, they are a set of representatives whom heaven has not generally endowed with the ordinary qualifications requisite to legislatures. Bird, then, um, his Bird's going back and forth between Virginia and London, um, goes directly to his friends at the Lords of Trade um, and lobbies against Spotswood. And then there are just a waterfall of letters um, coming out of the, the major families, the major planters of Virginia of how he's destroying the tobacco trade, how he's destroying the Indian trade, how, um, how corrupt he is, what a tyrant he is. Um, and that is in, in part how he's going to end up leaving office in, in 1722. He arrives back actually after having made a successful treaty at Albany to find out that, nope, you are done, you are, you are toast, so. Wow, thank you very much. Uh, Crystal, I beg your pardon, excuse me. Alexandra, let's hear about uh, Governor Bernard once again. Sure. Well, I'm going to say right up front that Francis Bernard was not um, especially petty. I think that he would have liked to be petty, but I don't believe that he was competent enough to be petty. Um, I also suspect that Waldo is going to take this category, knowing what I know about Waldo. Uh, so instead, what I'm going to do is tell some of my favorite stories about Francis Bernard um, being extremely pathetic. Um, so my number one favorite story about Francis Bernard being very pathetic is um, in an attempt to impress his um, patron and his wife's cousin, Viscount Barrington, he attempts to have a model canoe made um, uh, to, send, to send over. So he attempts to uh, contract a Penobscot woman uh, to create uh, a model canoe. Um, and the in the letter uh, that you know he sends back to him, it's it's really it's it's a really beautiful thing to behold because it, it goes the story goes something like this. He goes, "My dear Viscount Barrington, um, I want wish to send you a canoe, a most remarkable type of vessel which can hold four men but be carried by only one. And to that end, I contracted with a great Penobscot artisan, one of the greatest examples of her of the craft among her entire nation." However, there was some strange misunderstanding and instead she gave me only a tiny model of a canoe instead of a full-sized vessel. But don't worry, I will get you a canoe. Uh, flash forward to a few months later when apparently this canoe has been sent, Francis Bernard receives a letter from Viscount Barrington to the effect that, dear Francis Bernard, I have received your canoe. It is very large and unwieldy and no one knows how to fix it. I do not have room for this canoe and I do not know what to do with it. Can I please give it to someone else? <laughs> um, so that's one. My other favorite story about Francis Bernard also involves him in the Penobscot where he, um, Francis Bernard was trying very hard to be kind of, um, you know, a learned man of science and letters of his age. Um, he made some attempts to sort of interface with a, a Royal Society uh, type groups 
Um, so in sort of in conversation with, with Thomas Pownall, his friend, he was attempting to see uh, if he could discover a new type of hemp, which had been observed growing wild uh, in what's now Maine. And so to, to that end, he um, was trying to get seeds for this, for this supposed hemp to get it planted. Um, and uh, uh, so he sort of entrusts it again to the Penobscot. Um, he's like, okay, go plant this and then bring me back all the seeds or whatever. And they're like, yeah, sure, 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 whatever. Um, four months later, they come back and they're like, oh, we lost it all. It fell in the water. How could that have possibly have happened? So Francis Bernard writes back, you know, so unfortunately our scientific exploits have been ruined once again by the foolish perfidy of, you know, the indigenous nations. It's da, 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 da. And this is the kinds of things that are just happening to him constantly. Um, it's, it's, you could, you could write uh, a better writer than me could write, make him a very um, compelling and pathetic tragicomic figure, although I don't have that much sympathy for him. So that would make it more difficult. Certainly not, a a certainly not a, a character worthy of sympathy overall, but I think we will definitely accept stories of uselessness and uh, just general ineptitude in the category in lieu of pettiness. I think that's completely acceptable. There's nothing and, wrong and the, with going for the pity vote. Fair. <laughs> that is and the Bernard way. It is, it is the Bernard way. And um, on a more um, serious note, um, it has been argued that his misrepresentation of the Stamp Act crisis, which he wrote about um, in a very kind of like uh, histronic and hi arguably hyperbolic way, was one of the things that poured unnecessary gasoline on the fire of the imperial crisis. So there is an argument to be made, and I will reiterate this when we get to impact, that he may have in some ways caused the American Revolution. Is Bernard ready for that kind of burden on his name? No. <laughs> but he is an unreliable narrator fair enough <laughs> and it did no one any favors all right and finally ian uh br bring us home in this category with uh with mr waldo asking to talk about waldo being petty that's fishing with dynamite but i'll i'll try and keep it brief so there's a whole genre of of, of sources and archives you can find of people who are wronged by Samuel Waldo who are asking for help. Um, and so I'll stick with, with two of the big ones. Uh, the first comes from a man named Richard Fry, who um, he had contracted with Waldo uh, to construct some lumber mills on the Presumpscot River just outside of modern day Portland, Maine. Um, and after doing so, he uh, he took out a uh, he he owned a lease on one of his own mills to make a profit, and it was sitting on land that Waldo and his business partner Thomas Westbrook really wanted. And so when um, when Fry would not sell to them, uh, they convinced the justice of the Pete, the sheriff of the community, uh, to uh, seize the mill and throw uh, Fry in jail for some sort of trumped up cause of debt. And he was shipped off to Boston. Um, and so he found himself in prison because he would not sell Samuel Waldo uh, this mill, uh, even though he didn't in fact owe him any money. Uh, then because uh, turnabout is fair play, Waldo's business partner, Thomas Westbrook, uh, who was already suspicious enough of Waldo that they had signed a mutual agreement in the 1730s not to target one another's estates in the event of any sort of business dispute between them, uh, 
Westbrook ended up owing his partner Waldo money. Um, Waldo sued him and then said to Westbrook, like, I'll work it out with you. He says, I'll meet you in the modern day city of Portland, Maine. Uh, Westbrook showed up to find that Waldo had in fact not met him there and instead had gone to Boston where the trial was being held. And because Westbrook wasn't there, he lost by default. Um, and so he had to petition for relief. Uh, Waldo likely was responsible for his business partner dying an early death due to some sort of heart failure and stress. Um, Westbrook's family was so worried that Waldo was going to seize the body and hold it uh, like on display until uh, he got his money that they buried his body in secret and it was not found until the 1970s. And many people didn't believe this story until somebody dug up the body uh, in the like in the in the site of the the Tate House just outside of, of Portland, Maine now, uh, where the bones were found and identified as Thomas Westbrooks. And so his family was so terrified of Samuel Waldo taking the body that they buried him in secret where he remained for over two centuries. Um, so those are my two favorites. Wow. Um, one heck of an entry in this category, I must say. Um, I gotta say, it's, it's difficult. It's very difficult to beat that. <laughs> it is difficult to beat that. Um, but in, in lieu of, in lieu of pettiness um, for Bernard, we will, we will definitely accept, um, uh, we'll definitely accept general uselessness as, a, uh, as an entry category. So we'll, we'll open the poll up uh, for petty, for pettiness uh, and uh, I'll give our audience a, a few minutes to vote. Um, any other? So Ian, are we going to call these the Waldos from now on? <laughs> <laughs> and I will say that it is somewhat that unfair uh, that this has been, that, that, that Ian, uh, you did design this uh, competition and the category, so. Um... I mean, I thought it would apply to a lot of people. Like there were other, <laughs> there were other people in, so like I was thinking, for example, one of Waldo's foes, Jonathan Belcher, for talking about pettiness. Well, Jonathan um, Belcher would probably win in pettiness. Um, he has all these pet names for people. And in fact, he hated Waldo and called him Duke Trinkolo, as well as the Eastern Trampurer. And apparently Duke Trinkolo is some sort of Shakespearean jab that I don't exactly understand. I had to, I spent like an hour in the archives just Googling and like trying to figure out what was going on with this thing. Uh, but it reads very much like high schoolers passing notes back and forth about each other. That's how Bird's writings are about the, the boundary dispute. So his secret diary of the, and the writings of the boundary dispute. But I thought Bird was a too obvious choice. So I was trying to go as spots with, yeah. but it's really, Bird is epically and he, we were, so Crystalyn and I, to be fair, we're talking about this. And it's just because Bird was also such a horrifying individual. Yeah. We're like raping. Not that Spotswood was not horrifying. Owning. He just right. wasn't Bird level horrifying. Like, For people who are not sort of early American specialists, could you at least describe the William Bird diaries that are like legendary among practitioners? And that. Uh, wow. Yes. Uh, so William Byrd is the very definition of a hedonist. And so on the milder side of things, he writes about meals that he's enjoyed. And on the more extreme side of things, he talks about his sexual um, 
predatory behaviors to Indigenous women, um, to African uh, Americans, and to the enslaved people. Uh, to be clear, about, he's a big planter, right? He owns like huge a huge planter. Okay, he's got yeah. his hands in in everything. Um, but Bird was a rapist, and so you know uh, he didn't really fit into like fun and jovial, <laughs> you know, yeah. greed and, and pettiness. But he is epically petty. Um, and so his, his writings about the people of North Carolina show his very classist tendencies um, and the way in which he, he viewed the, the folks of the North Carolina boundary with Virginia, especially along the, the Blackwater. So um, uh, with, a, with, a, with a margin of 75%, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, what uh, Waldo runs away with the, with the category of uh, of pettiness, and with those stories, it's it's hard to see why <laughs> it's hard to see uh, why he wouldn't. Um, so the the, the score um, stands at, at three uh, three to Waldo and, and zero apiece for for Spotswood, but uh, which which I think is is gonna is gonna give the great plaque to Ian here. So Ian, you'll be you'll be making yourself a plaque for for the initial. For the, the the first annual or first sporadic uh, Plundy Waldos, um, but uh, so so an early congratulations. But we'll see if we can get a consolation prize That's for right. That's right. for our others uh, mm. in the in the final sort of uh, meta category of of impact here. And so the idea here is, you know, what's the what's the overall impact of of this particular character on on history and and the people that they had around them. Um, did they did they ruin lives, towns, uh, colonies, entire nations, um, you know, populations, um, or, or did they just engender such distaste and displeasure among everyone they they came into? So, um, Alexandra, start us off with Bernhard. Sure. Well, again, as I mentioned, um, he uh, certainly, I mean, causing the American Revolution is obviously a bit. Uh, bit more weight than Francis Bernard can possibly bear, but he did certainly um, contribute immensely to poisoning the relationship between um, the Massachusetts colonial legislature um, and the crown um, in the 1760s and beyond. Um, he really, um, you know, uh, created a situation um, he took a bad situation and he made it infinitely worse, essentially. Um, and, and, he, and he set up um, some of the themes that the moving forward did certainly play into the, into the American Revolution um, and both, both in terms of his um, uh, unfair enforcement of navigation acts as part of the larger greed uh, picture, as well as just his, his responses to the um, Stamp Act um, unpleasantness, riot, I mean, I guess riots. I mean, in Boston, they really were kind of riots. Um, so he didn't do himself any favors there. So that's probably his, his largest impact in like a very like larger scale there. I did, um, I, I, I looked at his Wikipedia entry uh, just to, just, just briefly, which I mean, if any undergrads are listening, don't do that necessarily, but I have a PhD so I can do what I want. Um, <laughs> uh, and under accomplishments, it, all it says is um, his accomplishments in Massachusetts included the design of Harvard Hall at Harvard University and the construction of a summer estate on Pond Street in Jamaica Plain, full stop. <laughs> Which, 
but beyond that, I will also say that, um, especially in relationship to uh, the shenanigans that he got up to in um, Passamaquoddy Bay, which is an extremely complex situation, but his, his contributions to the unclear sovereignty of uh, what's called the Sagadahawk country uh, between the St. Croix River and the Penobscot, and also the specific location of the St. Croix River, um, significantly uh, muddied the waters in ways that um, weakened Massachusetts's claims to that area in ways that became very significant in the aftermath of the American Revolution um, and the location of the US-Canada border. Um, so I would say those are sort of that's the other big, big picture thing is that he um, uh, potentially impacted the location of the border between the United States and Canada, as well as uh, causing, as I have said, the American Revolution. <laughs> um, depending on how you, you consider it, a charitable reading of this legacy <laughs> or, or not. Well, thanks very much. Um, he also uh, introduced the canoe to Viscount Barrington, much to everyone's disappointment. Uh, a, a canoe, certainly. A canoe. Uh, Crystalline, let's, um, let's hear about Spotswood. Well, uh, I too like to, to pay attention to what the wiki is saying in terms of you know, what are they most famous for? And of course, uh, he's responsible for the death of Blackbeard. So that's, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, he's also really well known for uh, the Knights of the Golden Horseshoe, which was this quite uh, fictionalized account of a transmontan uh, expedition into uh, the Shenandoah. It becomes the sort of stuff of legend in the colonial period um, and of course then in the 19th century gets reimagined and is part of the whole manifest destiny uh, settler progress to the west so he is absolutely connected with inspirations for westward expansion uh, for folks like Daniel Boone um, and then later of course westward expansion into uh, the literal far west but he in the long, the long and short of it for the Virginia India Company that I was talking about today is directly responsible uh, for most of the Indian trade going to South Carolina uh, and the lack of regulation to, to lead to indigenous partners not wanting to have anything to do with Virginia traders. Uh, they eventually don't want anything to do with the Carolina traders um, either. Um, but the one of the things that the Virginia traders um, made their indigenous partners do was act as their own pack horses. Um, they had to carry all the goods. They would not provide um, any pack horses. And so they decided that they wanted to work with the Carolinians instead. Um, and that's a whole other story because things explode in Carolina as well. But then also I could make an argument that he is also ha has some connections to the American Revolution because the Virginia Assembly figures out that if they complain enough, they get exactly what they want. So they, they push back to imperial authority. They complain to their favorite friends at the Lords of Trade. They've got their pocket people in parliament and they get what they want. They get rid of Spotswood. Wow. I think that's Spotswood's most compelling, strongest showing across all the categories. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Ian, let's uh, let's round it out with a with another visit to Mr. Waldo. Um, Waldo, I think uh, it's harder to make an argument for lasting impact in terms of what he represented because I have to say I, I spent 
uh, a lot of time uh, with Samuel Waldo when, when researching my book on the sort of changing interpretations of, uh, of Indian land deeds and, and property in uh, colonial Maine. And Waldo, uh, if we're thinking of fictional characters to compare people to, Waldo is an example of like a Cersei Lannister type who's just not as clever as they think they are. And that's why they do so much damage is Waldo, uh, Waldo spends his whole career still fundamentally trying to prove to everybody that a shady land deal is real and he fails. Um, and Waldo died right before uh, the Massachusetts was able to finally crush Wabanaki military power and really open up uh, Wabanaki lands to sort of untrammeled colonization. And so Waldo, uh, Waldo spends a lot of time scheming without much success. And so yes, Shirley becomes governor of Massachusetts, Waldo's personal attorney does. Uh, and Waldo thinks it's because of his, uh, his scheming, but in fact, the evidence suggests it was just from his part, dumb luck. And so Waldo, is an example, one of these great examples of American colonists who think they have a lot of sway in England, and in fact, they don't. Um, and Waldo dies right before a lot of other fellow colonists like Waldo get disabused of these delusions where they think like, oh yeah, if we really want something, we can sail to London and we can ask for it and we can get it. And in fact, when the when parliament and the king really want something, they don't actually care what the Americans think. And so it turns out American, you know, governors, royal governorships are traded around as favors. Um, and the British empire is discussed in many circles, by especially non-specialists, as sort of like, oh, this is really sophisticated modern capitalism. Well, no, the British Empire at this in the 18th century is funded is functioning, in many ways, sort of like uh, just kind of like feudal fiefdoms in the sense of you have these private gifts going back and forth between families, and there's not a lot of it's a lot more pettiness and a lot less reason than people think. And Waldo, I think, is really emblematic of that. So he tries really hard to, to, to populate a lot of his claims in Maine. Um, and he has some limited success and, of course, makes a lot of Germans uh, and Native Americans unhappy uh, at, at various points. Um, but uh, his, he, died, he literally dies while surveying uh, his newly won uh, land claims at the end of the seven years, the so-called seven years war in 1759. When the Wabanakis are finally defeated, Waldo was on a military expedition to survey this newly, from his perspective, open land, and he drops dead of a stroke. Um, and so I initially thought that he was this very all-powerful figure, but instead I realized his, his life is this sort of Sisyphean struggle of like constantly trying to get his way and then failing and having to start over again. He crossed the Atlantic Ocean like five different times to try and prove his case uh, to no avail in the end until he died. Um, so yes, uh, and if you look at his Wikipedia page, it just says, yeah, he claimed a lot of land and there's a lot of places named after him. <laughs> <laughs> so petty, greedy, um, a climber, but ultimately a tryhard. Yeah, that's a good oh. way to put it. Yeah, a tryhard. All right. So we'll open this up for, for voting uh, in this, our, our, final, uh, our final category. Um, and we'll give, uh, we'll give everyone just a few minutes to, to weigh in here. Any other sort of closing thoughts for overall impact for, for anyone in particular? 
Uh, well, just in terms of this is actually sort of more circling back to petty pettiness. Um, I did mention at the top of the show that um, Francis Bernard uh, gets a baronetcy uh, after he returns to England, after he's sort of like air vacked out of Massachusetts as things get sort of worse and worse. Um, I think technically he gets kicked out because he's accused of saying bad things about Massachusetts behind Massachusetts' back, which of course he's doing. Um, but once he gets back and they end uh, sort of the board of trade and, and all his other bosses read the letters, they're, they're kind of into it. And he gets the baronetcy, um, not for any particular thing that Francis Bernard did, but really just to stick it to the colonists um, to say, you know, this is a guy that you guys didn't like very much. So we're going to give him a baronetcy and a pension. Then we're going to cut that pension um, and then he'll die of a stroke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but... Defeat from the jaws of victory once again. Yes. Thinking, I'm wondering if the other two esteemed panelists have thoughts, but thinking broadly, I know for me, and this was one of the inspirations for, for doing the show, but like, and listening to your, your cases being made that I, uh, oh, in the past, let's just say hypothetically, the past four or five years, give or take, I've become much more comfortable with the idea that people in power aren't necessarily competent, uh, you know, and that there's not necessarily a master plan, whether it's in government today uh, or, uh, or certainly in the past. And that like looking at historical actors and why things work the way they do um, that I think I've become much more accepting of, of the, the discovery that like, no, this thing exists not because there was a real master plan, but because of a series of accidents and yes, private grudges and pettiness and not because there was this well-intentioned system uh, to, for example, put the town in such and such a place or to, to, to do whatever. Um, and you know, historians always talk about how we're we're products of our own time, and that's certainly uh, perhaps the my cynical take on like American politics uh, as well as other politics in the world over the past couple of years has really shaded my perspectives of of historical figures in the past. And so I was I was wondering if these thinking about these you know petty and corrupt figures in comparison to each other has made you think about uh, any of your own work or any other of uh, your, your specialties more in a different light? Yeah, well, I think um, for my part, I spend a lot of time in my work thinking about people's grand schemes because there certainly were a lot of folks who thought that they had it all figured out and they had a big all-encompassing scheme about how things were going to work. Um, uh, Francis Bernard is maybe not the greatest example of that, but he is in his sort of colonial um, redevelopment scheme where he's figured this all out that, you know, it's Massachusetts will be okay with us taking away the eastward if we just give them Rhode Island and Connecticut and, you know, and it's going to be a fight. And there's lots of thinking like that and a lot of this, these very big and, and grandiose ideas. And what I've come, so to me, it's not so much that there aren't people who and things are not motivated by a larger scheme, but it's that these schemes are never successful or uh, work especially well. So it's, 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 to me, it's more like um, a series of uh, coordinated failures. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a series of, of plans, sometimes intersecting, sometimes agreeing with one another, none of which ever work out. So it's not motivated by any large conspiracy or any kind of a neat plan. Um, there are, but there are motivating ideas. It's just those motivating ideas um, are simply fail repeatedly. 
in interesting ways. Failure matters, like just as much as success. Um, I don't know, Crystal? I think about it in terms of intellect versus savvy mm -hmm. and the stunning arrogance of just so many of these folks that we've been mm. talking about that they, they not only do they think that they know better, but they absolutely cannot read the room. And so I know I joked and said, no, you know, they don't know how to win friends and influence people, but like they, the inability to read the ground, to be aware of missteps that have happened before, to have any sort of cultural awareness whatsoever. I know, yeah, I'm still talking about the empire, but <laughs> uh, not, you know, even attempting to, to work with with individuals or to, to play the game, so, so to speak. Um, it, that's what, what I find really interesting and fascinating about so many of these, these colonial governors and administrators is that they have an idea on paper and they're gonna make it happen, hell or high water, and often it's spectacular failures. You, you also make a good case that like sort of tying in like, you know, one of the uh, major causes or grievances in the Amer by the American revolutionaries is like these cartoonishly corrupt uh, appointees and flunkies who treat their offices and it legally is their personal property. Um, mm -hmm. And part of the sort of anti-corruption idea that like citizen volunteers are, are better at the for better and for worse that still remains in like American you know political ideology uh, you can argue you know has it really has its roots as a reaction to some of these clowns right who, who come along and, and literally think they own their offices so an update from the poll is that once again we find ourselves tied and uh, which means that again I, I get the privilege of breaking this tie and 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 I, I think I have to give this to Bernard uh, and grant yes. second place to Bernard um, <laughs> as the as the now father of the American Revolution is what I learned today yes. <laughs> great well thank you so much for having me uh, on to do this Ian this yeah. has been a this has been a, a great time this has been truly great. And usually when we, uh, when we, when I end all these other episodes, I ask people to plug something they're working on. And so in that spirit, um, if uh, Crystalline, if you would like to, uh, to plug anything that, uh, that you have in the works that our audience should check out. Well, I am currently at work on a book about indigenous memory and uh, Settler, Florida, but my most important project to talk about is a project with you, Ian. Oh, yeah. Do you want to tell them a little bit about <laughs> Great Upheaval? <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go right ahead. You're on a roll here. Uh, so we are working on an edited volume together that is very vast early America and looking at this, this time period in question, uh, 1676 to about 1725, 1675, excuse me, 1676, it sits in my head, you know, Bacon's Rebellion. It's the big year, that's right. So it's always going to pop right into my into my mind. Um, but we, yeah, we've got a just a motley crew of fantastic, fantastic contributors, and so we are hard at work at going through all those various essays. But they, the book should be out in about eighteen months or so. That's true. Stay tuned, everybody, for the great upheaval. That's right. At all the conferences and everything else. <laughs> um, yeah, Alexander. What about uh, what's cooking either at Mount Vernon or elsewhere? 
Sure. Well, I mean, there are some exciting things cooking at Mount Vernon. I'm not at liberty to uh, really uh, get them out there quite yet, but, you know, keep your radios tuned to the Mount Vernon station as were. Um, uh, more immediately, I have a blog post coming out soon with the, uh, the blog that's attached to the Journal of History of Ideas um, about Nova Scotia as an idea which taps into some of this uh, these ideas about folks that think they know what's going on and then they don't and then they just everything just blows up in their face. Um, so that should be out in the next couple of weeks. That's the next uh, big thing for me. Awesome. And then I guess finally, uh, you and I are both going to be at the Maine Historical Society's Historians Forum on August 7th, uh, a, uh, a half day conference on Saturday, August 7th, uh, all about the Pajepskit proprietors, some of whom could have competed in this contest themselves um, and their world. Um, and so besides Alexandra and myself, uh, we'll be hearing from Michael Blakeman and, uh, and some other talented scholars. It will be free and open to the public uh, at our uh, Facebook, as well as on our Twitter page. We will be sharing uh, event links to uh, that Historians Forum event uh, later this summer in the near future. So stay tuned. And uh, our listeners will also be able to hear a recorded version of this episode uh, when it comes out later this summer. I should give a final shout out to Brian Dan Hartog, the composer of the Mainly History theme. Uh, so anytime you hear catchy tunes on this show, uh, that was Brian's doing. And so he went a long way to making this, this organization sound professional. Uh, so my hat, possibly full of silver, is, uh, is tipped to him. Uh, thanks so much to everybody who tuned in to listen to this historic uh, first live episode. Uh, stay tuned for later recordings throughout the summer. My thanks again, Alexandra, Crystalline, and Guy. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time. Bye.